Good morning. Well, it's such a beautiful morning, isn't it? It's awesome. Um, there's only one mistake that I, I made this morning whenever I got ready for church. Um, I wore white shoes. And so I shouldn't have done that, right? I told the, the last crowd, I was like, I wore white shoes and now there's grass everywhere all over the shoes. But, but I'm so thankful that you're here. My name is Chase Baker. I am, uh, I'm the family pastor like Pastor Nick said, of Rolling Hills. And, and it's such an honor for me to, to be here as we wrap up, as we close out a series called Forward. Called Forward. We're looking at the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians. We're going to be in chapter four today. If you have your copy of scriptures or you have your mobile device, you can open, go ahead and open up to chapter four of Philippians. And so he's writing to the early church. I want you to know that he's writing to the early church, but he's writing from a place that was so unlikely. He's writing from prison. And this is one of four prison letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. And this is to the encouragement to the encouragement of the early church to really push the, the church forward in their way of thinking, the forward in, in their thoughts and their attitudes, forward in, in faith. And as we wrap up the series, here's what the, oftentimes I think you've asked this before. You may have asked it in a different way, but, but maybe you've said statements like this. I want to move forward in. You fill in the blank. I want to move forward in. In marriage, in your career, in education, in healthy eating, you want to move forward in those things, which is great. But you also made, made statements, I want to move forward from, from. And let's just all fill in that blank, 2020, right? I want to move forward from 2020. But, but here's like the pre-sermon before the sermon, um, because the Apostle Paul um, he actually said at one point to the early church, he said, there's, Lord, he's praying to God. He said, Lord, would you remove this flesh from me? He was going through a lot. He, he was going through persecution. He was going through beatings. He was going through unimaginable things. Would you remove this flesh from me? And then the Lord spoke to him and said these words, my grace is sufficient, sufficient for you. And then he said what? He said, my power is made perfect in weakness. And I really do think that, we are in a state of weakness, and we should be. That as the church, we need to be in this posture of weakness because then the power of God can work in and through us. I believe that's what's happening even in 2020, that we have to take on this posture of weakness to rely on His power even more. So with that said, before we get into it, and, and I've got several things that we're going to talk, uh, talk about today, I want to hit it fast. Fast and furious, all right? So, uh, so will you do me this favor? Just pray with me before we get started. Father, may we forever be changed by your words. Uh, your word does not return void. Your word is sharper than any double-edged sword. God, we may, may we forever be changed by it. We love you so much, God. Thank you for this opportunity to worship as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So Philippians chapter 4, in his closing statements to this early church, he begins by opening up with this. Uh, so this is kind of big, he, he's kind of tackling big ideas, and I believe they're relevant for us today. He says this, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and I long for, my joy and my crown. He loves this church. He loves this church, this church that has been so faithful, this church that has provided for him, this church that he has a good relationship with. He says, I love this church. Then he says these words, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Stand firm in the Lord. He reminds them to stand for, firm. And I'm like, why is, he, why is he reminding this church that he's so dear to stand firm in the Lord? What's going on in the church? Well, verse 2, I plead with you, Eodia, 
And I plead with you, Sintich, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Be of the same mind. See, there's something going on in the early church. There were some, some leaders that were causing kind of distension in the assembly. They were contentious rather than content. They were, they were, there was a disagreements of some sort. We don't know exactly what was going on, but Paul spent some time just in the closing comments uh, of making sure that this dis- disagreements didn't cause division. He made sure to address this big issue in the church. So, so we get to this point in Scripture, the very first thing, he said, the very first thing you need to know in order to move forward, to move the ball down the field, is to first be of one mind. Be of one mind. Here's what I would say to us before we kind of jump into some practical things that Paul gave us. He starts with this, be of one mind. We are the church, and God has called us to be one. I feel like we need to know that. I feel like we need to rest in that. To keep working together, this is called togetherness, regardless of distinctives. We're, we're all not the same, clearly. Like if I sat down with each of you and we discussed different parts, different ideas about the Bible, or different teaching methods, or, or sports, or music, we probably wouldn't agree 100%, would we? And, and sometimes, <laughs> this is funny, sometimes it's complicated working with people that just don't think the same way that you think, Right? But Paul is saying here, unity doesn't mean we are not diverse, but it does mean that we are not divided. Unity doesn't mean we're not diverse. It means that we are not divided. It's good to be different, not divided. But when we are divided, we're not working together. So here's an activity. This is not for the kids. This is all for the adults. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your neighbor, whoever that may be, and I want you to tell them this. Okay, you ready? It's okay. Go ahead. It's okay that you're not as right as me. <laughs> but we can still do more together. You have to say that last part. We can still do more together. Okay, it's not okay just to end on you're not as right as me, okay? <laughs> uh, we can do more together. And the, thing, that, the, the one thing that connects us all is the gospel of Jesus. And that means whatever we're facing, however difficult it may, it may seem, however impossible it may, may, may seem, becomes possible when we do this thing together carry one another's burdens, love one another really well. We have to work together. Jesus even spoke to this idea of togetherness. He spoke to this idea of oneness. When he spoke, when he prayed for the early church, in, in John chapter 17, he, he prayed for the early church. He prayed for all believers, and he could have prayed for anything. He could have prayed for protection. He could have prayed for provision. He could have prayed free from, from persecution. He didn't pray for any of those things. What did he pray for? He prayed that the church would be one. He prayed for oneness, that they would be one under the umbrella of Jesus. So, he prays for unity, and that's how Paul chooses to begin this closing chapter to the Philippians. And we can't, we can't what he's referring to is we can't, we can't move forward divided. We can't move forward divided. And then... After he establishes, we are to be in this together. We are to be one in the same mind. Then he gives four practical ways in order for the church to move forward in faith. Are you ready? Four practical ways. In the first, he says this in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Number one, you need to know is be joyful. Say be joyful. 
be joyful. Uh, rejoice means to feel or show great joy or delight. Paul knows that conflict can divide us. Paul knows that the early church is going to face persecution. Paul knows that we're going to all face suffering in this life. But when we rejoice, it gives us a new perspective. You see, the problems are not as big as the praise. The problems are not as big as the praise. And Paul writes from experience. Uh, let me just tell you that he wrote a letter to the early church in Corinth. And in this letter, he talked about his sufferings. And this is what he said. I've been in prison. I've been flogged, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received 40, 40 lashes, three times beaten with a rod. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, spent the night in the open seas, been constantly on the move, been in danger from rivers and bandits, fled from Jews and Gentiles, been cold and hungry. We think 2020 is hard. This guy had it rough. But what Paul's getting at, he said, you don't have to be joyful for the circumstances, but we can be joyful in them. Here's what rejoicing comes from. Rejoicing comes from a deeper understanding of eternity. When we, people can rejoice when death has been defeated. People can rejoice when they know the author and perfecter of faith. People can rejoice when they know that this, that this is not the end. That this is not the end. It allows us to view life a little bit differently. So the first thing is be joyful. And the second thing that he, that he says in verse five, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all that what? That the Lord is near. The second thing Paul wants us to do as a church to move forward is be, to, be gentle. Be gentle. So be joyful and be gentle. Here's what I know about a, um, a gentle person. Um, and, and typically not a word to describe we like to describe ourselves as far as men. But here's what gentle person doesn't stir up drama, doesn't point out other people's mistakes or compete with neighbors. A gentle person is considerate of other people's needs. A, consider, a, a gentle, gentle person um, gives people the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes that's hard to do. You see, we live in a culture that gentleness is hard to come by these days. In fact, the response usually that happens whenever somebody does something that we don't approve of or whatever, the response is anger and frustration and, and aggression. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying here, our gentleness allows all people to know that the Lord is near. It allows all people. So how we respond in our response to in gentleness, it allows people to see the Lord and know that, that he is near. So be, be joyful. I told you I was going. Be joyful. Be gentle. And then he moves on. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In other words, if you don't know how to respond to this life, Pray. Pray. So the third thing is pray often. Pray often. Uh, if you're anxious, pray. The stats on anxiety are staggering. I, I can go on and on about the stats on anxiety, but there's one that's pretty dear to my heart uh, because I work with um, families. I work with teenagers and kids all the time. Is this. They say that the average high school student today has much, as much anxiety as the average psychiatric patient of the 1950s. That, that hurts. And the interesting thing about 
about the response to anxiety, the solution, he says, is to pray. And when we pray consistently, he says, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. This peace is not found in things around you, found in the people around you telling you that all is well. It's not found that way. It comes to a peace that comes from the thing, above all those things that are not well to the one that is well and, and, and let you see that he's working all things according to his plan. What's interesting here is that Paul is in prison and he has a different perspective on what a guard is supposed to do. And so there's a guard literally outside his door, but it's, the guard is doing two things. It's keeping Paul from going places, but it's also doing what? It's keeping everything else from getting to him. So that's what he says the peace of God does. He says peace of God, when you pray, the peace, that's what prayer does. The peace of God will will work in you and protect you from those things outside the world, outside in our world and protect your heart and protect your mind. So that's what he says. He says, hey, be joyful, be gentle, pray often. And then Paul just takes a few minutes is where I'm gonna focus most of our time on today that I believe is a driver for all these other things. In fact, I believe he sums up the entire book with these words. Um, it it kind of drives our thoughts and how we stand firm. It drives our joy, drives our gentle approach, drives our prayers. And he says this, you ready? Verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See, here's what I do. Here's what I think Paul's doing. He's summing up the whole text. He's summing up the whole text in one sentence. And he lists some pretty awesome things. But I think the one word that stands out over all of these things is the word think. See, Paul tells us to think well. Think well. Here's what I believe. Change change requires new thinking. We see in scripture, Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. Romans 8, 5 through 6, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So here's what I want to tell us today. The battle for sin and anxiety and self-worth, um, it starts in your mind, not in your behavior. It starts in your mind, not in your behavior. The way we think determines how you feel, and the way you feel determines the way that you act. If you want to change the way you act, you change the way you think. If you want to change the way you feel, you have to change the way you think. For instance, I can say, I want to... I need to love my child better. I need to love my child more, but that's not going to work. You can't fight your way into feeling. You can't fight your way into feeling. You must change the way you think about your kids, about your husband, about your wife, about your employer, about your employees. Change the way you, and that will change the way you feel, which will change the way you act let me ask you these, these questions. I think this is personal reflection here. So what do you spend the most of your, the majority of your time focused on? Who do you spend 
majority of your time listening to? What types of images do you have before you? When you have a little bit of extra time on your hands, what do you begin to drift towards? So that's what he's getting at, changing how you think. So, so how do you think about those things? How do you think about what is true and noble and right and lovely and all these things that seem so good? It seems so simple, right? You just put, the, put true up, up there and you write down all the things that are true. You put noble up there and write down all the things that are noble. But here's my, my problem with that. And here's what I was thinking about. Is it left to my own devices to figure out those things? A lot of times, whenever I write those, those things out, they may be good, but maybe they don't align with God and his word. Here's what I mean by that. Is it the apostle Paul also made this statement. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And then Jeremiah 19:9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, it's our sinful nature. And so I'm thinking, well, what is Paul really asking us to do? Think about whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's, whatever's noble, whatever is right. What is he really asking us to do? Think about what all those words do describe. Jesus. Jesus. True. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What is lovely that God is love and what is noble that he willingly sacrificed his life for us. Think about those things. Think about Jesus. Think about what he's done for us and what he's doing in us. Think about those things. You see, when we think about Jesus, um, that means we are spending time with him in his word. We're taking time every day to kind of kind of spend some time, quality time with him. And when we do this, the Bible says this then the Spirit will renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Here's what I believe. When we think Jesus first, when we think gospel first, we can't help but be transformed by it. We can't help it. And when we are transformed by it, guess what? We begin to act and, and do the things that he does. I heard an author and speaker once say this. He said, nothing great ever happens through you until it happens in you. Nothing great ever happens through you until it happens in you. And that's what God desires for us. He knows that the one thing that can change us to give us a new perspective and to unite us is to take on the mind and heart of Jesus. That's the one thing that can do it, to become more like him. This is how the church is going to move forward. I think about big issues like um, racial injustice. I think about um, our response to pandemics. I, re I think about the election that's com coming up and I think, okay, the only way that's gonna help us to respond to those things appropriately is taking on the mind and heart of Jesus to allow him to transform the way that we think, to spend more time with him. I was thinking about the church in general and our response to 2020. I was like, okay, so some things I think we did appropriate. Some things I don't think we did that well. I'm thinking this is an opportunity for us to say, okay, we are gonna fix our, our eyes and our hearts on Jesus because whenever we do that, we begin to take on his attitude and his heart and we begin to treat people differently. Um, we, be, we begin to worship a little bit differently. We begin, what I believe is going to happen is change will happen as a result. I believe the, the gospel will, will advance because we're taking on the heart and the mind of Jesus. You know, I was thinking about this idea of moving forward and it immediately made me go to a man in my life that has had a deep impact on my faith journey. 
a story of moving forward, a story where he had to change how he thought about himself and about God. Uh, I want to finish with a story today that started a couple weeks ago whenever I was speaking at another campus, and, and it's a story about my dad. Um, my dad, I told a story uh, about my dad in, in, uh, to close out our series called Life on Purpose, and the point I was trying to make in that series was that um, our actions have an imprint on the next generation. I was talking about my dad and how much of a d- deep impact he had on my life, and I'll tell you more about that in just a second. But, but let me just give you that story. Whenever I was um, in between my sophomore and junior year of high school, that summer I went on a mission trip with my youth group. And that mission trip was different because my mom and my dad went with me on this mission trip. It was the first time that that ever happened. And so we went on this mission trip, spent a week in Mill Creek, West Virginia. Have you ever heard of Mill Creek? I didn't think so. Um, so we went to Mill Creek, West Virginia. And I had a great week. It was such an awesome week. I didn't know, though, what God was doing in my dad's life. So we got back home. And, um, and two days later, he called a family meeting. Have you ever had a family meeting? We haven't. This was the first time. And I was like, what, did somebody die? What happened? What is he going to tell us? So my dad organized this family meeting, and he sat us all down, me, my brothers, and my mom. And he began to tell us what God was doing in his life in Mill Creek, West Virginia. At the end of that, that whole story, he said these words, and I'll never forget it. He said this. He said, I've been saying no for 15 years. He said, I'm done saying no. It's time for me to say yes. And for the next year, he was a missionary in Mill Creek, West Virginia, and he went to disciple the police chief, the fire chief, and the mayor of this town. Now, that had a deep impact on me, and I'll tell you why and how in just a second. But a couple weeks ago, I called him, and I said, Dad, I've never asked you this question before, but what did you say no to? For 15 years, you said no, and what did you say no to? And he said, that's funny because I've never told you. (laughs) And then he began to tell me a story that that God had a call on his life. And in fact, it called him to be a full-time vocational ministry to be a youth pastor in Texas. And so he actually moved the family down to Texas. I wasn't born yet, but he moved the family down to Texas. He enrolled in Bible college. He enrolled in school. He was going to get education, but he he had a church that he was going to go serve in. And so he started going to this church that he was going to be a youth pastor. And two weeks into it, he said, no. So it's not for me. I want to move my family back home. I'm not going to pursue this in my life. I want to pursue other things. And for 15 years, he lived with regret. I think a little bit of shame and disappointment. And, and, and I'll tell you that story because 15 years later, he changed his thinking. He changed, he said yes. The first thing he said yes to was going on a mission trip. And that yes led to him being a missionary. And that yes led to him God not making only a difference in his life, but making a difference in the next generation. You see, his yes paved the way for a year and a half after his yes, then his son surrendering his life to full-time vocational ministry to be a youth pastor. That was me. His yes paved the way for me to say yes. 
what's interesting, I, I think, about this whole thing is that um, God's in the business of redemption and restoration. He redeemed that. He redeemed his no. His no, 15 years, for 15 years became my yes 15 years later. Get that. His no to, to being a youth pastor became my yes because he said yes. Because my dad decided it was time to stop saying no. And I wonder if that's what we need to hear today. And why did I share that story is because moving forward happens in our yeses. It happens whenever we say yes to unity. It happens when we say yes to love. It happens when we say yes to joy. It happens when we say yes to Jesus. Maybe you're, you're in this setting and what you needed to hear more than anything is that God redeems our past. That he wants you to let go of regret and shame and disappointment so you can move forward with him in grace and love and peace and joy. Maybe you, you have said no for way too long. And it's time for you to start saying yes. Regardless, here's what I believe. We, we've got to be a people that move forward in Christ by saying yes. God, whatever you want me to do, however you want me to live, wherever you want to send me, I say yes. What would that take? And I believe that's going to have a deep change and deep impact on the church, but how the church impacts the community. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful to, for today. God, I, my prayer is that for us, that we would be a people that say yes. We would say yes to more joy. We would say yes to more gentleness. We would say yes to praying more often. And we would say ultimately say yes to you. God, change our hearts and our minds. May we be a people that respond in faith. May we, we be a people that we say we can live for a lot of things, but the most important thing to live for is you, God. Remind us of that. Forgive us when we fail you. Forgive us when we make this about us. When God, you're trying to do so much more. In Jesus' name, amen.